All right, so I think probably most of you don't need this, but I just kind of want to make sure we're clear on where Haggai is in context. And so this is um, what I think we started this Bible study about three years ago in Genesis. And so just in chronologically, of course, we have about a 900-year period of time from Abraham and the Exodus and Judges and all of that until finally we have the kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then, of course, uh, we spent a long time about the splitting of the kingdoms and how we have the ten northern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, and this was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And we went through this 200-year period of time and talked about the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, as uh, being relevant to this time. And then 722 BC, of course, we have the Assyrian captivity, and the ten northern tribes are lost. Okay, so in this uh, Bible study that um, began um, several months ago, we've been focusing on this period of time leading up to the Babylonian captivity, and we've talked about Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then finally um, Daniel. Okay, so we're going to move on from this. Okay, and um, so the fall of Jerusalem was in 586, and so we have this roughly 70-year period of time where um, Jeremiah's... uh, you know, warning about this. Remember, Daniel talked about the 70-year period of time, and then God's people would come back. And then we have the Edict of Cyrus um, to return. And we actually didn't go over this part of the story in Daniel, but remember the, the writing on the wall, and that day the Persians came in and uh, conquered the Babylonians. And so Cyrus then allowed the Jews to return and to rebuild the temple. And so we're in this period of time right here, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, And the individuals, historical individuals involved at this time, are Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. Okay, so we're going to spend two or three weeks here on, probably just one week on Haggai and and maybe two weeks on Zechariah. So then the rest of the Old Testament, um, here there isn't that much left, because uh, we'll talk about Esther, a book which describes the people that chose not to go back to Jerusalem. And then we'll uh, talk about Ezra, Nehemiah, and then finally Malachi. So we'll uh, be able to spend a a good amount of time on the Gospels here before the end of the year. Okay, so we can kind of lump uh, Zechariah and Haggai together. And so Zechariah talks about, again, the 70-year period of time and God bringing his people back. So this is from Zechariah 1. Then the angel said, Almighty Lord, you have been angry with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah for 70 years now. And I hope some of you have been here when we've talked about God's anger and how just reproducibly, again and again and again in the Old Testament, we see that associated with a separation between God and his people, uh, an abandonment, you know, just Christ's words on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Those words associated with God's anger. How much longer will it be before you show them mercy? And then the Lord answered the angel with comforting words. And the angel told me to proclaim what the Lord Almighty had said. I have a deep love and concern for Jerusalem, my holy city. My temple will be restored and the city will be rebuilt. Both Haggai and Zechariah spend a lot of time talking about the temple. It will be rebuilt. Okay, so we come to, to Haggai, who needs to encourage the people to rebuild the temple. And the Lord Almighty said to Haggai, These people say that this is not the right time to rebuild the temple. The Lord then gave this message to the people through the prophet Haggai. 
My people, why should you be living in well-built houses while my temple lies in ruins? Don't you see what is happening to you? You have planted much grain, but have harvested very little. You have food to eat, but not enough to make you full. You have wine to drink, but not enough to get drunk on. You have clothing, but not enough to keep you warm. And workers cannot earn enough to live on. Can't you see why this has happened? Now go up to the, to the hills, get lumber, and rebuild the temple. Then I will be pleased and will be worshipped as I should be. Okay, so the people need to come back and, and rebuild the temple. <clears throat> Haggai 2. Is there anyone among you who can still remember how splendid the temple used to be? Solomon's temple? How does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all, because of course it was uh, destroyed, burned down by the Babylonians. But now don't be discouraged, any of you. Do the work, for I am with you. Okay, and now we come to the, the passage that uh, we're going to focus on in, in Haggai. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you first came out of Egypt, so do not be afraid, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth. Um, this Christmas, we had a chance to hear the Messiah uh, concert, and I should have actually put this up in the King James so that it would maybe be more familiar. But uh, this is one of the early passages here in the Messiah. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake the oceans and the dry land too. I will shake all the nations, and the treasures of all the nations will come to this temple. So this is describing something that would seem pretty dramatic here. Shaking the heavens, the earth, the oceans, the dry land, all nations, all the treasures coming into the temple. Okay, what is this referring to? I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord Almighty. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord Almighty, have spoken. Okay, so our question is, what does this refer to? I will fill this place, this temple, with glory, and the future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory. Because that's setting a pretty high bar. This is referring to Solomon's temple. I mean, I don't know that there's been a, a structure more magnificent than this, or one building that I could see in human history. I think it would probably be Solomon's temple. And so uh, this is kind of a, a big ticket item here, big promise. So what does that mean? And of course, Solomon's temple. Remember when he finished praying, fire came down from heaven, burned up the sacrifices that had been offered, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled the temple. Okay, do we have any description? So the temple was rebuilt again, uh, but do we have any description of that fire, of that kind of thing happening in the temple that was rebuilt? And if it didn't happen in the rebuilt temple, then how can we say that that temple had a, will have a greater glory. And uh, this would seem kind of like a failed promise here because as we read on to Ezra and Nehemiah who describe you know, the rebuilding of this, that when they were rebuilding it, many of the older priests, Levites, and heads of clans had seen the first temple. They saw Solomon's temple. This is only 70 years. And as they watched the foundation of this temple being laid, they cried and wailed because it was so inferior compared to Solomon's temple. Okay, so um, how does this match up? Certainly, the structurally, and in terms of a building, this was nothing like Solomon's temple. So we have the promise here that I will fill this place with glory. 
the future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory. So it kind of begs the question, well, what is glory? What is God's glory? We associate that, um, I would say, pretty much with uh, lights and power and brightness and, and that kind of thing. Okay, so uh, that will kind of be what, what we'll want to consider here. And here's just another, uh, this one also is, is from the Messiah, a pr- prophetic message about the coming of the Messiah. But, but notice now the description in Isaiah 40, a voice cries out. Okay, in the New Testament, this is used for John the Baptist. A voice cries out, prepare in the wilderness a road for the Lord, clear the way in the desert for our God. Fill every valley, level every mountain. The hills will become a plain, and the rough country will be made smooth, and then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it. The Lord himself has promised this. So what's the glory of the Lord <clears throat> Excuse me. that's revealed in this passage? Um, the New Testament would use this to describe the coming of Jesus. Okay, so again, what is God's glory? Okay, we have a, a clear description of it all the way back in Exodus. Okay, we talked about this a long time ago, but remember Moses said very directly to God, show me your glory. Okay, and so what do we expect as we read on? When God reveals his glory, what does he reveal? And to Moses, this was the description. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and pronounced his holy name. Okay, we've talked about this quite a bit, that name in the Bible, it's... it's means more than when we just say someone's name. The name encompasses the person. It describes the character. And here God pronounced his holy name, the Lord. And then read, notice the description. Then the Lord passed in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. So Moses asked to see God's glory. And what he gets is... God pronounces his holy name, and then we have a description, really, of God's character. So I would like to make a case here that uh, the the glory of God is much more than lights and power and all of that, that if we really want to get the essence of what God's glory is, um, it is the person. What is our God like? That's God's glory. And um, so as we've done many times, we just have to kind of get the whole story in about the war in heaven and what really has happened from the the very beginning. Because what I kind of want to talk about today is what's so important about God's character. If that's it, why is it really that relevant to us today? So let's go all the way back. What was the problem in the very beginning? This war in heaven and, of course, this ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, that deceived the whole world. How did the ancient serpent deceive the whole world? And, of course, that first story, it's, it's just so critical, I think. Uh, what happened at the tree? And uh, I think we've been through this enough times, but I, I just we couldn't talk about this enough, I don't think, that initially what happened to our planet is that we have this crafty serpent who asked this, uh, would seem an innocuous question, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And, of course, the contradiction here, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. And God said, you may eat the fruit of every tree, any tree, except for one. It's just such a subtle accusation here against God. God is not a God of freedom. You can't eat any fruit in this garden. Okay, it's just kind of getting a, a foot in the door, but it, it really is an accusation against um, the character of God. He's, he's restrictive. He's limiting your freedom. And, of course, uh, Eve's kind of weak response here 
you know, should have just left. And when someone's making uh, subtle accusations uh, against God just to engage in, in dialogue, perhaps dangerous. And uh, she said, well, we may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except the tree in the middle of it. God told us not to eat the fruit of that tree or even touch it. If we do, we will die. And of course, here is Satan just goes in for the kill. That's not true. You will not die. In other words, uh, God has lied to you. God is untrustworthy. He's a liar. The, the, what Satan is trying to get across here is just to destroy um, her image of who God is. He's really not trustworthy. And um, that's done by making accusations against God's character. And if those accusations are believed, then, then Eve is cut off in her connection with God and, and really is uh, not in a place of safety. Okay, and then finally, the Satan says, well, God said that because he knows when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. So in other words, God has selfishly kept something from you that would have been for your good. Okay, and so it's a, kind of a three-pronged lie here that was all uh, designed to separate um, Eve from God. <clears throat> so I like this uh, quote from a long time ago um, here, but it's, it's kind of what I'm trying to say here, is that Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief of that falsehood in regards to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. Okay, so the believing a lie can be very harmful, and we see that right away in the story because, you know, God goes for a walk in the garden, and uh, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're hiding in the bushes. Okay, they're not afraid of Satan in this story. They're afraid of God. And so I would say human history from here has essentially been uh, hiding in the bushes, uh, afraid of a, a certain vengeful, tyrannical picture of God. And we certainly see that uh, throughout the Old Testament. All of the other gods, they're always angry. You know, they always need uh, child sacrifices. The god Moloch, who they would heat his hands up in the hot fire and then place the babies in there as a sacrifice. The gods are always angry. They need flowing blood, lots of sacrifice. And so there's this incredible um, separation here that's taken place. But the root of the problem was really uh, a believed lie about God. And so uh, we see this, um, I think, uh, I've tried to make a point of this as we've gone through the Old Testament, that uh, the distortion of God's character, really, we can say that's the root of the problem. The Assyrian captivity, okay, we just went through a quick timeline, but um, so many times it seems that when we're describing what's the core problem, what's going on, before the Assyrian captivity in the book of Hosea, the description of the people is there's no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land, and that's not a knowledge of uh, facts or details about God. This is knowing God. Okay, this involves much more. No knowledge of God in your land. My people are destroyed because they don't know me. It's the same thing uh, that we're talking about here. They don't know God's character. It's all your fault, you priests, for you yourselves refuse to know me. They have exchanged the glory of God for the disgrace of idols. And again, what is the glory of God? Here in this context, it's not knowing God. Okay, they're worshiping idols. The, the going after idols was a preference for that type of a God, an angry, vengeful God. Okay, and, and later on in Hosea, what I want from you is plain and clear. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. 
It's a, it's a contrast between a, uh, an appeasement to an angry God with what God really wants. Remember, we've talked about um, Hebrew poetry, which is, is based on, um, not based on rhyme, but on repetition. So the first line here, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices, goes with the second line, I would rather have my people know me than to burn offerings to me. Burning offerings goes with animal sacrifices. Uh, God wanting our constant love goes with knowing him, because those, those two things um, really go together. Okay, and then Isaiah, remember he's also writing in this time leading up to the Assyrian captivity, would, would say the same thing. I raised my children and helped them grow, but they have rebelled against me. Oxen know their owners and donkeys know where their master feeds them, but Israel doesn't know its owner. Okay, eternal life is to know God. That's not a New Testament concept. It's all the way through the Old Testament. My people don't understand who feeds them. Okay, so we see it from the beginning of the sin problem. Uh, we see it through the Assyrian captivity. Uh, we see it in the Babylonian captivity. I know that we read these when we went through Jeremiah. But just to make the case again, here in Jeremiah 2, uh, in a description of the people, they worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. My own priests did not know me. And, and this is, I think, one point we could make here. Why is it important, our understanding of God's character? Um, it is a, a natural law, really. I think it's like a law of physics that uh, we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. And so this verse here, they worshipped worthless idols. And remember the angry gods behind those worthless idols. And what happened? And they became worthless themselves. Okay, so the more distorted our picture of God is, that, that is destructive. That's harmful. Okay, the closer our picture of the true God is, is refined, that can't help but have a, just a natural effect on us. Okay, in Jeremiah 4, my people are stupid. Why are they stupid? They don't know me. They're like foolish children. They have no understanding. Again, no understanding about God. So we come through the Old Testament again and again and again, these kinds of things. And then we have the Pharisees, of course. And I think this we just can't make enough out of this point here, that the Pharisees were reading the Bible, had memorized large portions of the Bible. They went to church. They paid tithe. They were very careful to keep the law. They were expecting a coming Messiah. All of these things. But yet, they looked at Jesus and said, he is of the devil. And of course, he said, you are of your father, the devil. That it's even possible to do so many good things. Bible reading, church going, all of that. And yet, to look at the true God and to see the, the demonic. Okay, so, so again, the, God's character would seem to trump a lot of uh, doctrinal things that we could make. Not that those aren't important, but if we have a, have a wrong picture of God, we could look at the real God and, and um, even think it's demonic. So um, before we get to the New Testament here, even in the Old Testament, the, the real hope is that this knowledge of God, that, that's kind of the ultimate end goal. Okay, I don't think we read this in Jeremiah, but it's such a wonderful passage here about the new covenant that God will make with the people of Israel. And it will be this, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And of course, what is all law? All law is to love God, love your neighbor. God will put that law of love on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And none of them will have to teach a neighbor, a neighbor to know the Lord because all will know me from least to the greatest. 
So the, the, the greatest hope that could be described here in this passage is that everyone, least to greatest, will know God. Okay, and this is again in the eternal life is to know God. It's, it's a knowledge of God's character. It's an absolute trust in the, the goodness of God. Okay, and one more in, in Habakkuk. Another future promise. But the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord's glory. And we're making the case here that that is, in its essence, not just that God is bright and powerful. Yes, that's part of it. But it's a knowledge of God's character. And that knowledge will be as great as the seas are full of water. So again, the, the end goal is this really uh, unfolding of a true picture of God. Okay, so a little more here on this passage in Haggai. And, and the point I'm trying to make is that this temple did not exceed Solomon's temple in terms of its physical structures. But it did exceed Solomon's temple because Jesus walked in this temple. And Jesus is the, the pinnacle moment in human history, the revelation of God's character. And so in that sense, the future glory was greater than any glory that Solomon's temple had. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we, we you know, talk about the, the birth of, of Jesus so much that it kind of loses its impact. That, um, you know, that the one who came was God. And I can't even really wrap my mind. I was reading a, a neuroscience um, text that came out, and it's, it has several chapters on neuroembryology. And I just, I just couldn't ha- help but thinking that God had an immature brain, that had to develop slowly in the womb. Um, can we even, almost uh, seems blasphemous to say that, but to become a baby, dependent on diaper change, that this was the method that God used to ultimately uh, win this uh, victory, to win our salvation. That says something, in fact, more than anything, as much as the cross about who God is, coming as a baby. And of course, it's described that way in John 1, that the word became a human being, full of grace and truth, lived among us. We saw his glory. Again, Jesus was not bright, except on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is something more than brightness. We saw his glory, the glory which he received as the Father's only Son. Okay, no one has ever seen God. I mean, really. Uh, I think this is referring to more than a a physical um, seeing God. Moses saw God face to face. But I think no one has ever really seen or understood God. That's why Jesus came, because the only Son who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That was Jesus' mission, to reveal God to us. Okay, and so, um, again, we'll go over this quickly here, because I think we read it about every other Bible study, that eternal life is to know you. And Jesus, you know, he's just going out to be crucified. You would think if he's going to tell his disciples something, it would be something of great importance. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. On earth I have shown your glory. There it is again. By finishing the work you gave me to do. So what was the revelation of this glory? I have made your name or your character known to the people you gave me. So so that's what it's all about. And I think, um, you know, again, as we come up here to the Gospels in uh, in a month or two, You know, I think we just need to read it, and we just need to, with every story, everything that Jesus did, we just need to keep hammering home in our minds, God is like that, God is like that, God is like that. And um, we need to be careful not to reduce the mission of Jesus to paying a price, 
because then we, we tend to almost discount the revelation of what God is like just by the things he did. And so here Jesus treating the woman caught in adultery. And of course, ultimately, uh, the supreme revelation of God's character, dying on a cross. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, he reflects the brightness of God's glory. Okay, again, that's not merely a physical brightness and is the exact likeness of God's own being. So I think if we want to fix in our mind uh, a picture of who God is, we have to... We have to see that God is the one on the cross. Okay, and if we just move forward to the future, it it really carries through all the way. Jesus told this parable in three different ways about the second coming. And he would say, when the judgment day comes, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we spoke God's message. By your name we drove out many demons and performed many miracles. And then I will say to them, and you probably remember how this finished, but uh, what did he say to them? He said, go away, I never knew you. And if we take this knowing God as a theme that runs all the way through the Bible, God can seem seem rather cold here. Go away, I never knew you. Okay, no, this is to have a meaning that it's knowing God in in the biblical uh, sense. It is that knowledge of God's character, that relationship. And so, again, the Pharisees called God by the right name, but because their picture of God was distorted, uh, they had it all wrong. We could claim you know, to be followers of Jesus. But again, if our picture of God is 180 degrees wrong, uh, just saying that uh, is, is not the end goal. It is knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how does this impact how we view our world? And I think um, this should have a relevant impact to everything that we experience. If God on the cross, that's, that's our crystal clear picture of who God is. Um, I think everything that happens should have somehow be filtered through that knowledge of God. Okay, we talked about the time um, in Constantine when the Christian church went from the persecuted minority to the persecuting majority, and where instead of you know, self-sacrificial love like we see on the cross, uh, we see Christianity being enforced and coerced and threatened into people. And I think... You know, again, if the majority of the church at that time were just solidified to being faithful to the character of God as revealed by Jesus, then this would clearly be seen as an absolutely wrong way of, uh, this is not Christ-like, and so we're going to reject that, and it should stand out as something that is uh, wrong and, and not, the, not God's methods, not consistent with God's character. Um, here is a, a movie about Tyndale being uh, strangled and burned, okay, for trying to translate the Bible. And again, if, I mean, who looks like Christ in this picture? It's, it's the one who's being killed by followers of Christ. Okay, so uh, again, if the church were solidified in this is what our God is like, self-sacrificial love personified, could not help but see that whatever you think of Tyndale and what he's doing with the Bible, that this is not Christ-like. And we shouldn't be torturing people and putting them to death. Okay, it's, it's, it, it, we need to bounce everything we do off of uh, who we see our God to be. And just to um, very contemporary issues. Um, how do we deal with evil? You know, we, we talk a lot about evil in the world. And um, we just consider what God did with evil. How did God deal with rebellion? Okay, and, and we see how God dealt with it. He came. And he died himself. And I love this quote about dealing with evil. 
that everyone has become a captive of a fateful illusion that believes itself able to drive out evil by force. In this world where we everywhere marshal force against force, we must learn that force, at best, may succeed in containing a few manifestations of evil, but it can never conquer or eliminate evil. On the contrary, the force with which we fight evil has mainly the consequence that we ourselves become the victims of evil. As we resort to force against others, evil attacks us from behind and makes us evil ourselves. And so, the, um, again, I think as, as much as we're solidified on the, the Christ way of dealing with it, uh, which was not to use force, then that, that impacts perhaps how we see methods of dealing with evil. So God's methods, I would see, as a reflection of God's character. What do we see God doing? Of course, we see that in Christ. But that comes from, um, it's, it's a manifestation of who God is. Okay, so this is a quote from, from Ellen White. I should have put the, uh, the reference here. But again, going back to the whole rebellion in the big picture, and she would say that God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. And this is a quite a strong statement. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and the, the power here, truth and love, are to be the prevailing power. So if we're going to use uh, power, if we're going to call it um, Christian, it should be to present the truth and love and to allow people to freely uh, make up their own minds. Okay, coercion is, is not effective, and it would not seem to be um, consistent with the methods that we see in Jesus. Okay, Gandhi wouldn't have called himself a Christian, but he certainly was Christ-like. And, and I agree with this quote. He would say, power is of two kinds. One is obtained by the fear of punishment and the other by acts of love. Power based on love is a thousand times more effective and permanent than the one derived from fear of punishment. So again, this is the, the force that, um, that we see in Jesus, and it is the presentation of love and then allowing people to freely make up their own mind, that that's the method of operation, and that's what's um, consistent with God's character. So uh, let me just bring this up. I, I found this to be uh, rather shocking about uh, torture. It was a 2009 study, and uh, what was surprising about this is who supports torture. This was 62% of white evangelicals felt that torture can often or sometimes be justified. And if we look at the breakdown here, 54% among those who attend religious services weekly uh, supported torture as sometimes or often justified. 51% among those who attend religious services monthly and those who seldom or never attend, only 42% um, supported torture. Um, now, um, again, you, as a physician, you will spend your career uh, alleviating suffering, okay? In the dying, in people not dying, you treat their migraines, whatever you do. Your, your emphasis is to prevent suffering of any kind. And um, torture is... Um, it just seems quite, quite backwards here, that in this study, the more religious, the more likely to support torture. And again, I would see the root of the problem coming back to, um, are we really solidified in Christ's revelation of God's character on the cross? I mean, 
tortured to death, that, that we would use those kinds of methods or support them um, as Christians. Um, there's a TV show, I won't say the, the name, but I've watched it several times, a very popular um, news analyst who supports torture, among other things. But um, he had people on several times, and here's always his scenario um, to, to defend this, that um, you're, you're at a shopping mall, and someone steals your child. And maybe there are two people involved, and the police catch one of them, and the other person got away with your child. Now, wouldn't you want the police to use torture on that man if he won't talk? And um, I've, I've heard him use this at least four or five times, and, and no one, well, yeah, I guess, sure, if, if that's the only way. Um, but just to, to think about the implications of that. Um, police don't torture right now because they have no legal authority to torture. Do we want police to have legal authority to torture, uh, to get information? And can we imagine you know, what our society would become with that kind of a you know, Gestapo mentality. So I think um, maybe the other point to make here is that um, the methods are extremely important. And I think as Christians, um, faithfulness to a way of living, okay, faithfulness to a Christ-like way of living, that has to trump effectiveness. And that may mean, in the short term, less effectiveness. I mean, you could certainly make the case about Christ dying, that that was not effective. Even his disciples left him, did not seem effective. Okay, in the long run, it was enormously effective. Okay, so being faithful can be hazardous to your health, personally, as a Christian. But it's more important to be faithful to that way of living than to, than to do something that may be uh, more effective in the short term. That would be my position. Okay, let me just give some other uh, contemporary issues and how I see our understanding of God as, as something that we can use to, to reflect on contemporary issues. Um, freedom. I think freedom is, is intimately in harmony, a part of God's character. Um, this is a quote by Sigvi Tonstead, and it just says it better than I could tell you right now, so I'm just going to read it. Uh, that evil arose in the context of freedom. There could not be evil in the absence of freedom, and yet freedom only provides the opportunity and is not the cause of evil. Freedom is the value that God will not surrender, even in the face of sin. In the Christian account, freedom is seamlessly tied to the character of God. God has, as it were, taken upon himself to pay the price for freedom rather than to solve the problem of sin by abolishing it. And we just see the, the respect that God has for freedom, our freedom to do stupid things and to mess up and to destroy the world and all of this. But um, God does not coerce. And so freedom here, this has to be, we have to see this as, as such an important part of God's kingdom, God's character, that we should really be proponents of uh, freedom in the world. And so just uh, in closing, I'm, I'm not trying to be too political here in this talk, but uh, I was quite surprised to read just a few days ago that um, I wasn't aware that these drones are being used quite extensively um, in our own country, and not just for federal operators, but also for state and local law enforcement. And you can just Google this and find all kinds of articles. And this is, um, you know, it, it's a little bit scary, I would say, because this is not like a police helicopter going up to catch the guy who robbed Target or whatever, but these can stay up for a long time. I mean, these are surveillance. And um, again, if we're really proponents of freedom, we see that as, a, as a, a critical part of God's method and God's character, 
then I think these things, we might have a, a certain reaction uh, towards this. This was a law that was um, just passed a few days ago, December 31st. It's called the National Defense Authorization Act. And um, again, as I heard this, it just it triggered again some thoughts here about um, freedom. And maybe at least we can say, well, let's contrast how kingdoms of the world operate and how the kingdom of God operates. So this act affirms the president's authority to detain via the armed services any person, including U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, who is part of or substantially supported al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces that are engaged in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners, or anyone who commits a belligerent act against the U.S. or its coalition allies. Uh, Can we define what is a belligerent act? It seems rather vague. Under the law of war, and they'd be held without trial until the end of the hostilities, and then the text goes on to authorize trial by military tribunal. Um, and again, it's, if, if we really are, I think, solidified on the, the high value of freedom, this would certainly have seemed to me, at least, to have potential for great damage. That uh, the, the vague term here, any belligerent act, can be held without trial, and then the trial is by military tribunal. I don't know, that, that just raised some red flags for me. Groucho Marx once said that uh, military justice is to justice what military music is to music. And what he meant by that is, you know, we just compare a great symphony by Bach compared to a Sousa march, and that's kind of how we can compare military justice to other forms of justice. So um, again, what's the relevance of God's character and and all the ramifications of that? I think it does impact how we watch the news, how we filter information. And then finally, what, if all this is true, what is our final message? If we want to go out and talk about something, what should we be talking about? And again, this is uh, Ellen White, but it's it's something that um, for me has become um, extremely important. And she would describe it's the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Notice the problem, the darkness of the misapprehension of God enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Okay, what's the message? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Okay, let's pray. Father, none of us here have a perfect picture of who you are, um, a full knowledge, even a partial knowledge of your character. But yet, uh, we just pray that for each person here, that that would become a mission in life to understand you better. Um, And especially as we come to your life on this earth, Please give us insights about who you are as we see the words that you said, uh, the way that you lived, and uh, we just pray that somehow that would become part of our lives as well. Amen.